And welcome once again to The Game Pit. This is episode 31 and we're super excited because this is the first of our Essen preview specials. So, as with last year, we're going to be looking at all the information that's available right now before the Essen Fair on any titles coming out that have caught our eye, we think might be interesting, might be worth your consideration. So, all of these opinions are not based on plays of the actual games, they're just based on what we know before the fair and the sort of decision-making process we're going through in terms of what we think about picking up there. In each episode, we're going to be going over five games each, and we're hoping to get two or three of these episodes out to you before the Essen Fair begins. Sean, what games would you like to cover today? Okay, Roland, I am going to be doing Imperial Settlers, Essen the Game Spiel 13, Nations the Dice Game, King Sport Festival and Greenland. Okay, and my five games for this week are La Isla, Omega Centauri, Orongo, Looney Quest, and Ravens of Three Sashari. We are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for the very best in gaming podcasts. You can also find the Game Pit at 2d6.org, along with a host of gaming goodness. So let's start off with Imperial Settlers. The game comes from Portal Games with Ignacy Treswick, the designer of this. And we all know Ignacy from Robinson Crusoe, Theseus and other such games. It plays one to four players in a time frame suggested of about 60 minutes. It is a hand management card game based around civilization building. So in Imperial Settlers, each one of you is going to adopt one of four races the Romans, the Barbarians, the Egyptians and the Japanese and each of you receives a player board for that race. The player boards have spaces for production, they have a feature space and an action cards or building space. There are a set of unique building cards for each race and also a common set for everybody to use. The phases for each round are lookout where players are going to gather their cards for that round. Production, you're going to receive resources, workers, etc. for the round. Action, which is where the mainstay of the gameplay takes place. This is where players are going to use their cards and resources to basically advance their civilization. And finally, the cleanup phase. As I said, the action phase is the mainstay of the game, and players now have the option to put buildings into play. These are going to give you bonuses, resources, or actions. They can raise their buildings... This is by destroying their buildings or other people's buildings. They spend a raise token or more, and they reap the raise building rewards. Now, the last thing they can do with the buildings is do a deal. By spending a food token, you can get the deal rewards. Players also use any actions on their in-play buildings. The game lasts five rounds and scores are totaled up with common buildings scoring one victory point per common building in play and unique one scoring two victory points along with some other special scoring that's a very quick overview Roland. but what are your thoughts on imperial settlers well this is a reworking of the sort of game systems that ignacy first explored through 51st state and those games that came after that i think there's a new one coming out even at s and new ruins or something like that anyway which is good because 51st State had a lot of promise. It's uh, something with this in which the cards interact and you build a tableau and you're attempting to run your own sort of little faction in order to, to gain resources and score points. It's 
Imperial Settlers definitely built on the skeleton of that. And 51st State was very puzzling. It was quite opaque. It was difficult to learn. It was difficult to teach. And I, I never really got my head around it. I haven't given it a massive try to get my around it, but it was difficult certainly to get your head around. So that's a good step in the right direction. The, the two things that are kind of putting me off, and I admit this could be a personal thing, is that firstly, it's a really generic theme. Now, this might just be because of this Essen. There are so many civilization building games coming out of this Essen. It's amazing. I don't know how we're going to split them all up. And I think we're going to talk about certainly one or two more as we go through the previews. And the second thing is, Sean, that artwork is absolutely awful. I don't know what the man with the spade is doing on the front, trotting along that country path. The, it just This kind of jokey, cartoony artwork really doesn't sit well with the theme and the kind of aggressive play that, that's present within the gameplay itself. Well, I'm going to shock you by disagreeing. I actually like the artwork. I'm a big fan of the artwork. I think it's bright, it's clear, it's colourful, it's cheerful. I do, however, agree with one of the Dice Tower guys, Z Garcia, who likened it to a freeze frame of a Facebook game. And yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, definitely. It does have that about it. Now, I think this game, it looks bright and cheerful. And as you say, it's got that cartoony feel. But there is the ability to destroy other players' buildings and... So it's things that people have worked towards and worked hard to get. You have the option to destroy. Now, there's also the option to defend them. But is it a sort of a wolf in sheep's clothing, this game, Ronan? Is it going to be a really nasty, backstabby game? Or is it, is it going to be this cutesy little game where everyone gets along? Well, definitely, yeah. Exactly what we're talking about there is, I don't know why you're saying you disagree with me and then agreeing with me in the next breath, Sean. <laughs> it's a case of, I don't know, that artwork does not suit this game. And that's my whole point. It might, it might be great artwork for another game, but for this one, it creates the wrong sort of feel. I think people can pick up that box and go, oh, yeah, Settlers, I know Settlers of Catan, oh, great, you know, building up a little bit of farming and stuff. And that's not it. In this game, a big mechanism is raising each other's building, which scores lots of points. I think that certain um, factions are more liable to be raised. I think the Japanese are quite likely to get their buildings raised, what have you. I don't know. Again, I haven't played it. I think the player interaction is very important because... It's only 60 minutes, and getting your engine building quite early within that time span looks like it's going to be important, and there is a luck of the draw aspect going on. And if you do draw cards that combo together, then you're going to get a bit of a head start. So I think some of that player action is there to counterbalance the luck of the draw, and it's based on a very interactive game, and I like that, but exactly what you said. I think they've stuck a wolf in sheep's clothing. I will say that one of my problems with it, and that hopefully player interaction balance it out, is that as you become more successful in the game, you gain more actions, and players who are doing less well have fewer actions, so they will be sitting there having done their round, knowing they're losing, while the player or players who are more successful are continuing to take more and more actions. So downtime, when I know I'm losing, is quite depressing. Just go back slightly, Ronan. I actually like the fact that it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. I, I, quite, I find that quite endearing, but that might say a bit too much about me. Anyway, you, thought, you think the, the misleading thing... of the buy in public is a good thing, do you? Is that what you're saying on record? <laughs> no, I like the cutesy feel and the teeth lying behind the cutesy feel, is what I'm saying. Anyway, going on to the races, you mentioned the Japanese being maybe slightly easier to attack. I think they have got a defense mechanism built into the game with their samurais. They're the only ones that can put people on their buildings to defend them. But it's going to be key for me that this game is that the races play thematically and differently. I don't want just a picture of a Roman who plays exactly the same as the Barbarians. 
So my fear for the Japanese isn't so much that they'll be attacked, but they seem to be the only one that offers something greatly different. They are going to... It looks like they could either be super-powered or too weak. They're the only one that look to offer something massively different. Well, no, I I think that that is the part that appeals to me, the fact that the different races play differently or the different civilizations play differently. Again, I think this is getting a little bit too much into the game. I can't tell you how differently they play. The Japanese certainly look very different and they look underpowered. But then there's been claims, because some people have played this since Gen Con or what have you, the claims that each of the different races are both under and overpowered. So I think from what I'm reading, from what I can hear and what I can tell, it's very much luck of the draw. If you get in a strong position early, you're likely to do well. And I think that's more what it comes down to rather than either of the different races being overpowered or underpowered. And I, I'm not sure I agree with you that they look the same. I think there is enough differences there to make them feel unique. And the differences is definitely something I think they're going to work on because one of your pet hates, Sean. They've got expansions planned already for Imperial Settlers. And it looks like they're going to bring some um, deck building in prior to the game. So you get extra faction cards for each faction and then you need to take a certain number out of all the cards you have in order to play each game with so it might add some depth to it but also some sort of preparation time as well and a planned expansion already any thoughts on that again we're going too far we can't really tell if it needs it or not which i suppose is my issue with pre-planned expansions i think you let your public tell you what it needs before you actually decide what it needs but you never know sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't i think we have probably explored this one as much as we can from afar. Ronan, would you like to give this a trap or treasure ranking? It is right on the borderline for me. I wasn't that interested until you made me start reading the rules and looking more into it. The artwork had definitely put me off, so sort of the aesthetics and, and the outer shell it wasn't looking good. The gameplay looks interesting. I just think it's going to be a little bit too luck-based and the art is, you know, it is actually that deciding factor to make it a little bit irritating to me and something I don't want to share time with. So I am going to go... Some good um, games of it I think will be fantastic, but overall a trap. Ooh, controversial. (laughs) I have pre-ordered this. So obviously I think it's a treasure. I think it looks quick and easy to get into, but with a surprise set of teeth lurking. That's treasure. So the second game we're going to talk about this week is La Isla, another game from a big name designer. This is from Stefan Feld, famous for Castles of Burgundy, Trajan, Luna, Bruges, Notre Dame, and many more. It's coming from Alia who is, again, another big German publisher, likes Puerto Rico, Princes of Florence, Ra, Macau, and many more. This is for two to four players, takes around 60 minutes, and it's themed around players controlling a team of researchers who are studying different animals in different habitats on an island. Now, the island is set up from a modular board, and it's set up randomly. And then the animal tokens of the five different types of animals are distributed randomly around that board. So every game of this is going to be different. There are five types of animals and five types of terrain, and there's also five different symbols which go on the terrain, and they're going to combo with the cards which you're going to play, because this is very much a card-driven gameplay. Now there is a common deck of cards that gets shuffled up and each round you take three or possibly more depending upon your powers but generally three cards and you have to use those three cards in three different ways because the round is split into an A, B, C and D phase. 
Now, the C phase is not affected so much by the cards, so I'll just go through those other ones. Now, the, and the cards that you get, you have to use each of them in one of the three different ways. And the first one is to put them into a slot on top of your own player board, and that will give you a special ability for the rest of the game as long as that card remains there. The first three special abilities you choose stay there until you choose a fourth one, in which case you have to cover one over. So your special abilities are changing, and that kind of gives you a flavor. This is very much a tactical game. Things on the board are going to change all the time as you move your researchers around, and your special abilities are going to change. The second thing you do is take a cube. Now, the cubes come in five different resources, and they correspond to the five different types of terrain. And you're taking cubes, which are going to allow you to place researchers later on. And the last thing you can do with those cards is advance a particular animal marker. Now, for the five types of animals, you can be trying to surround them on the board with your researchers and collect tokens of that type of animal. Advancing the animal marker means you move the animal marker along a track on a separate board, which keeps track of how far all these animals have moved. And that will affect how many points are scored for each tile of each animal that's been collected. So you're more, you know, say I, I take a lot of a particular type of animal, I'm going to want to advance that marker further along to score me points during the game. You pre-plan all your moves beforehand, so everyone gets their three cards, decides what they can do with them, then you all flip them. A and B phases are simultaneous, so doing your special ability and taking your cube is simultaneous, and then the other two moves, or D can be simultaneous, but the move onto the board is the only thing that's really done in player order, because C is where you decide whether you wish to place one of your researchers on the board and pay cubes to place them. The special abilities will affect all of the different phases in the game. There are 120 basic cards in the game, and there are also 60 advanced cards which provide you with other combos, so even more so there's going to be more variety on the game. The cubes you use to place researcher on a train, what you're doing is each animal will be in a particular area, it'll have a certain number of terrains around it, and if you manage to get researcher in each of the different terrains around the animal, you get to capture that tile, which again corresponds into advancing the animal marker and score you points. It's a Stefan Fell game, there's lots of different ways of scoring points. How do you score points? You score points by capturing an animal, number of points for how many sides there were to that area you took them out of. When you advance animals on the animal track, you score points according to how many of those animals you have at the time. And also you start with one double animal, so it's worth two for the scoring, so it lets you know kind of one position you're going in. The end game scoring is, for every set of five different animals you have, you score ten points. And each animal token you have scores according to its position on the animal track, so again you're forcing that animal track up for your tokens to score and that's how you play. You're using your cards in different ways. You're attempting to get researchers out and move them around the board to capture these animals and make those animals worth lots of points. Sean. Well, Ronan, after the last game where you didn't like the look of the game, I'm going to flip it around. And I really don't like the look of this game at all. It is just a splash of colour. It looks like somebody has vomited a bag of Skittles onto the table. I would say that the look of it, it doesn't strike me as particularly pretty. I'm not thinking, oh, definitely I'm going to get that for the components. But I would say they're effective in showing what they do within the game. They're clear to read. I would say they do look a bit dated. It does look like a little bit like a 10-year-old Euro game. But function over form, I don't think it's horrific. And I think you've gone way, way too far. We've talked about the look of the game. Now, mate, I've got another issue. I think that the strategy of this game seems to be heavily dictated by the card draw. What do you feel? I think that strategy might be too big a word and grander words for this game. It's not designed to be a heavy strategy game. It's clearly one of Feld's much, much lighter games. His other game he's got coming out, Aquasphere, we're going to talk about next episode. That's the heavy one. That's where we're going to be sitting there scratching our heads. This is the quick 60 minutes aimed at a more casual and family-oriented game 
very tactical. The fact that you have to play over your special abilities, I mean, that's just emphasizing how tactical it is. The fact that the game board is changing all the time. You've only got five researchers. You can get some more, but you start with five, and you're going to have to move them around the board in order to, to capture animals. So the whole game is shifting all the time. This is definitely designed to be these three cards I've got in my hand. What can I do with them right now, and how effective they, can they be? Similar to Bruges, I think, but even lighter than Bruges. You're looking basically for temporary combos, and what can you do on the board right now before it changes? Okay, so this game feels like almost sort of two games sort of wrapped into one. Now, that's not always a bad thing. Now, thematically, it kind of makes sense. You're you're going after into the jungle to trap these animals that you've set yourself up for your expedition with the cards, but. The actual mechanisms themselves and the two sides, they just feel like they don't work well together. And especially on the island itself and in the jungle, that just feels really clunky to me. I just think there could have been more to that, Ronan. It works brilliantly. I'm really impressed with what he's done. I think the fact that you're forced to use those three cards, there's no sort of getting rid of one. And you've got a difficult decision to make. The fact that the cube you take is often going to take where you can put a researcher. Those special abilities are really handy, but you can only have three of them. Um, you're forced to advance an animal marker. You might be advanced animal marker that other people have the animals off, not even yourself. You're forced to always make difficult decisions. I think completely, I'm very impressed with how he has put this quick, clever card play into such a light game. And I think that maybe you've been out in the jungle for too long and you've got heat stroke. Yes, dear. Right, so... I think I've probably made myself clear. I don't like the look of the game. Nothing about the game really sings to me. It doesn't do anything new. It looks and feels dated. And for me, it's a definite trap. And for me, you can tell I disagree with Sean on this one. I'm not fully sold on it. Uh, I don't think the look is great, but I think, you know, it kind of does the job. I think that it is going to be quite light and tactical, which isn't always the way I want to go. But it's got a low price point. It's aimed at a more casual market. And in terms of that 60 minutes and under gameplay, it looks like it has got some brains. I think it takes what Bruges did and puts it into a quicker time frame and into a, a more appropriate tactical situation with more interaction and i like the look of it i'm going to say treasure so moving on to my second game of this episode it is essen the game spiel 13 it comes from geek attitude games who are a new company sprung out of belgium it is designed by fabrice bergan Etienne Esprayman and Frédéric Delporte. Frédéric is the only one who's got any pedigree in the gaming world so far. He designed Brussels 1893 in last year's Essen. This game plays two to five players with a suggested playtime of 75 minutes. What is it? It's an economic pick-up-and-deliver game with set collection and an action point allowance system. And it's based on Essen Spiel of last year, as the title will probably tell you. Each player is a visitor to the Essen Spiel halls during the 2013 fair and is trying to get their hands on the latest releases. The board features a large selection of big game publishers and another section where actual games from Essen 2013 will actually appear. The games will then be sorted by popularity with the most popular games scoring you more points. Players will spend action points, starting with 8 action points, to try and gather games, deliver them to their cars in the car park, and each game carried by the player, not in the car, will reduce their action points. 
The players also have a number of additional things that they can do on their turn beyond buying games and unloading, such as they get to playtest the games, which gives them a wish list cards. We'll talk about them in a minute. They can draw money out. They can draw 50 euros by reducing their victory points by two. And they can buy food to free up more action spaces. The wishlist cards, as I mentioned, they offer you more points if you get the game printed on the cards. And there are also ranking cards. And they are split into AM and PM. And they will offer you points for set collections and of the game types. Scoring takes place in the game after four rounds, which is called midday, and at the end of the game, with points awarded for the ranking games obtained, and in other ways like the set collection element, as I mentioned before. There's not a lot more to this game, Ronan. How do you feel about Essen the game, Ronan? What is that theme? <laughs> I've just explained. What is that theme? It's Essen the game 2013. What is that theme? <laughs> I've... What is what? I've be- I'm beginning to get a theme coming from you about the theme. <laughs> I just Who thought this was a good idea? <laughs> I'm just blowing. <laughs> the minute you told me to look at this, I was like, the what? The what game? What's it about? It should be mentioned, Roland, that there is another SM game out this year as well. That one? Actually, I think it's got a more interesting theme. <laughs> That's the one where you're running a booth or something. Yeah, See, you're, you're, going, you're shopping. You're shopping for games. It's just a shopping game. <laughs> I bought my kids when they were like three a, a pretend cash till and a load of pretend groceries. Is that what we're playing? Yeah. Okay, you know let's what? not talk about the game. Uh, uh, that theme just boggles me. Who is, why is that a good idea? I like, actually, they've done some clever things, right? I think the fact that they've tried to bring in lots of stuff from the real Essen is, is nice. You can make an Essen game, at least try and make it authentic. Firstly, the fact that the action's reduced as you pull up your cart, that's a nice way to handle it. Trying to carry things around Essen is a pain. Although, there's the cloakroom, use it, it's only a couple of euros. Um, I think the fact that they've tried to capture the buzz is very good, and the rankings go up and down, different AM and PM got to deal with the crowds later on in the afternoon the fact that you have to balance your money certainly is something that hits home for anyone who's been to Essen and most importantly it's really cool that they've got the license to use the actual games which were at the show last year so there's 60 different games that were released and you'll see them and that is definitely the coolest thing about this game is that oh I'm, I'm not you know going after AN worker placement game I'm actually buying Nations and Brussels and Caverna and whatever else they've got the license for. Yeah, yeah, I think the gameplay is it's very light. It is literally a pick up and deliver. That's all there is. There's a couple of elements where maybe you have to top up with your money, or there's not very many mechanisms here, which is a blessing really because that rule book is hideous. It is awful. If this game had any meat on its bones at all, I don't think we'd ever know how to play it. It looks like a prototype. That's what it looked like to me. It looked like, you know, the sort of Excel spreadsheet which you work out your rule book on. It, it, was, it wasn't great. And given that you're aiming this game exclusively at gamers, probably exclusively at gamers who are at Essen 2013, and probably the ones who have come back for Essen 2014 because this is where they're going to buy it, you, you know they're going to be looking at the rule book, and you have to get the details right. And they haven't got that detail right at all. 
and in terms of the gameplay, it does seem very sim- simple. It does seem really random on which games are worth more to you. It seems like incidental blocking is going to be rife because as you're strolling past a stall, it looks like it's almost always worth just grabbing a game while you can. Almost always. And then that might be the, the game that's crucial and, and worth the most points to another player and you have no idea. You just grab it it's worth a couple of points and why not? So this is, this is a hard sell, man. You're going after the hardcore gaming market and you're giving them a pick up and deliver with a rubbish wall. I'm not sure that it's that zero-sum in terms of, yeah, you just pick up regardless and there's no real choice to make. I think the action point allowance and the fact that you get less points the more you carry, I think that will dictate that you probably do have to go for the games that matter most to you unless somebody is a runaway leader. But I suppose that that is a snippet of a tactic in the game where there's not really that many. But, um, yeah, there's not really a lot more to say on this, Ronan. I think we can probably sum up. I think everyone knows what I think. Who wants to buy this game? I don't get it. No, trap. Right. This game, it looks okay. I think the fact that they have got the licenses, as Ronan said, is really cool. That you will actually be going after those games that you may have bought last year. But it is a very simplistic game. I'm not sure that of the longevity of it at all. I will say it's an absolute trap, but I've pre-ordered it, and I have a specific. <laughs> I have Can you a, say that a bit louder, please. I've Sorry pre-ordered it, Ronan. I have a specific reason for Essen 13 was my very first Essen, and all the games that I picked up in Essen are part of this game. So it is purely personal. It's almost going to be just like a collector's item in my board gaming collection. I'm not sure how often I'll play it. But it brings back fond memories, so therein lies the reason that I back this. But yeah, definite trap. You are encouraging this sort of behaviour. You are the problem. <laughs> no, I'm definitely part of the problem, not the solution. So the next game we're going to discuss for this Essen 2014 preview is Omega Centauri. This is designed by Nigel Buckle, who is he's had Celtic Quest come up before, but he has been known for this game for quite some time it's been his baby and he's been attempting to get it out and published he's had some problems that weren't his fault he's been sitting in the publisher's inbox for quite a while it's now going to be released by spiral galaxy now they're known for canal mania a brief history of the world and braggart it is a game for two to four players it comes with a base game and an advanced game the base game is around 60 minutes that's ambitious for your first game i'd say the advanced game you're looking more towards three hours of play it is a sci-fi 4X game in which players are playing as exiled races, gathering at the edge of a galactic empire, and then making a move against the empire. It's got a similar theme to Core Worlds, but very, very different gameplay. It's all about collecting resources, doing some action selection, improving your technologies, the usual sort of sci-fi 4X style. There's determinative combat within it, and you're looking to score VPs. Most VPs at the end of the game is going to win. Now, this game was known as Alien Ascendancy, and it's been around for so long, it was on the 2008 Essen list. And that's the kind of publishing issues Nigel has been facing with it. Finally, it's going to see the light of day. It is kind of a famous game on the UK gaming scene for having been promising, but not being out for so long. So well done, Nigel, for being so patient. And what do we think about the game? Well, you set up with a modular board, which is a real bonus to it. There's also lots of different races, so there's lots of variety in the game. As I said, 
the gameplay is pretty similar to a lot of other 4X sci-fi games. You're looking to improve technologies, move the technology later, to move further. You're going to get technologies which help you to when you attack. You're going to get technologies that help you in defense. You're going to be collecting resources from the systems that you conquer. And there's also the Galactic Empire itself is within the game, and you're going to be able to combat that Galactic Empire as you move around. Sean, there's not a lot to go over because it's pretty similar to a lot of other 4X games in the sort of mechanisms of it. In what ways is it different? I'm not sure in particular what ways is different, but one of the things I want to start off with is the variety in this. I think that's where I think this game may stand out, out from the crowd. The variety of races, the variety of technologies available, it's just vast. I mean, maybe something like Eclipse could probably match it for for that those two particular things, but there seems to be a lot going on in this game, Ronan. For sure, the modularity of the game is going to be one of the major selling points. There's loads of different races, so you can be playing with different combinations of races each time you play. As I said, the board is modular when you set it up. It comes with a standard setup and then lots of variety in setups. So I think, yeah, pushing that way towards... It also plays a bit more like a Euro as well in terms of it's very much resource collecting. Combat, like I said, is determinative. You either win or you don't. So it's definitely more Euro. There's not there's no dice rolling or anything like that going on with it. It's on a one edge of the Forex. But... Shall we start talking about the rulebook, Sean? Do you want to go first or shall I go first? I feel like we're giving rulebooks a hell of a kicking in this episode, but it really does need to be mentioned, this rulebook, because I think we, we've had a discussion before, Ronan. All the information is actually there, but it's not in any sort of order. Well, <laughs> they've made some strange decisions. Let's definitely put it that way. The rulebook is set out in blocks of text. So every single set of rules is within its own square, and that just makes it all feel disjointed. It's not an easy read. I think another thing they've done is that when you hit that rulebook, the first few pages of it, there is lots and lots of in-game terminology and discussion of concepts of the game before you've been given any idea of the structure or the goal or how that terminology and those concepts are going to sit within what you're trying to do. There's no sort of big picture and easy win they just start throwing things at you and this does that in this phase see page nine and that does that in this phase see page 16 it's really really quite disorientating there's for example wasted focus actions are explained before it even gets to phase one of what you do on a round so this it's talking about wasted focus actions i don't even know what actions are they're my focus actions or whatever fo- wasted focus actions are and, and you don't get to those even to phase two in the round and it does the phase one explanation and the big main first block is all about the advanced game and the first thing you tell me in the rulebook is don't play the advanced game yet only play the base game and yet top left of the page of phase one is all about how to play the advanced game it, it just disjoints you you're just like oh, that's, that's information i don't need right now tell me how to play this base game you've told me about then give me exceptions afterwards and really go on to them. Give me a rulebook that eases me into the game. Again, crowded market. You're coming up against some big hitters. There's already lots of Space 4X games out there. You have to get these things right. It just goes into that explanation using phrases I don't understand, Sean, and it is off-putting from the start. Yeah, definitely. It is really, really difficult to decipher how this game actually plays. It's, it's hard work. You mentioned there about the advanced game and the basic game. So let's let's take the lead from that. 
that basic game, once I had read through the rulebook a couple of times, and I'd kind of worked out how both games was were set up, they suggest that that base game plays in an hour. It looks like there's still a, quite a lot going on, even in that base game. I'm really not sure, with anything more than two players, this is going to play, play in anything less than an hour and a half to two hours. Yeah, I think I mentioned there right at the start, I think that's a bit of fibby pantsy. Maybe if you know the game really well and you've played it lots and you can crack straight into it, but then it says if you know it really well and you've played it lots, you're going to be playing the advanced game. So I, I don't know when anyone's going to be able to play it in an hour. I'm not sure about that at all. There's other funny things in there in terms of playing like the, the basic gaming and just getting into your first game of this. One of the first things you do is you draft one technology in the game. And the rule book says take a combat technology. If you don't, you're at a disadvantage. Okay? Well, why don't you just assign one to each different race? Why don't you just say, all right, there's that race, and it comes with that combat technology. Make it easy to get into. Don't make it this big thing. Why are you giving me overheads before I even play that seem unnecessary? Don't tell me I have a choice, then tell me I don't have a choice. Yeah, I couldn't say that any better. Just to sort of wrap up for me, this game, it really looks good from a distance. I really want to see this in the flesh. Because the closer the photos I've seen of this game get, the more suspect the artwork actually gets. I'm wondering if it is as beautiful as it looks from a distance, Ronan. I think that actually, in terms of the artwork, the tiles, the technologies, I think it is going to be quite striking and good looking. I like the artwork on the box. I think it fits with the theme. One thing with the components and the look of the game that I think may hold it back, especially when it's on display, is all your ships are represented by wooden discs. And sure, that's very practical and, and great. I'm sure it works very well and what have you. But we are dealing in an era of Kickstarter and plastic bling everywhere. And especially in this area of the, of the market, and especially within its rivals for attention. And the players that you're trying to get to play a Space 4X, are they going to buy a game with wooden discs ahead of plastic ships you mention it, Eclipse Ship Pack and what have you, but many other games as well that have put the bling in there and are not using sort of standard wooden discs. I know it might be a small thing, but again, it, with the rulebook not being great, that sort of look to it not being fantastic, is it gonna is it gonna kick? Is it, is it gonna spark? Ronan, I know there's a burning, burning issue that you just will not feel comfortable. You won't sleep tonight unless you get this off your chest. So, what about that score track, Ronan? I would feel like I had let our listeners down if I didn't mention the score track, Sean. Because that score track, I think it's actually brought me to tears once or twice. The score track comes in units, tens and hundreds. And you put a disc on each column, one for units, one for tens, one for hundreds. I don't know how you got taught maths. But in this game, the units are on the left and the hundreds are on the right. And you read it right to left. So... My score of 245 would read 542, left to right. And then the game tells you to score from right to left, which is opposite from the way you usually score. I can't, I can't handle it. It just, it's absolutely driving me crazy. I would think I'd have to cut up the board and swap the units and the hundreds round into the correct position because this is really, really disturbing me. And let's face it, we are not short people with OCD in the gaming world. And what a weird weird decision to make it like that it really it upsets me and it does actually give me nightmares sometimes calm down it's all right i'm not that was me being calm that was me being calm 
It's been worse. You've heard worse from me about that score track. I have heard worse. Okay. While Ronan sort of rocks in the fetal position in the corner of his room somewhere, I'll sum up. I think that the fact that this game has been six years in the making should have meant that we got a fantastically well thought out product a finished rule board that this whole game has been play tested and everything came together there's enough about the information that i've read and watched so far that ring alarm bells it looks nice there is definitely some good ideas i love the variety in the game but I'm just worried about the gameplay. I'm not sure that he's going to stand out amongst the crowd, and I think there's going to be a few too many flaws in there for me to really enjoy it. I hope I'm wrong, but for now it's a trap. I think that they may have let themselves down with some of the things on the, on the edges. I believe there is a really great game in here, an Amiga Centauri. I think it is a treasure of a game. I think that to play it will be great once you get over it. I hope that the not great rule book and those wooden discs don't hold it back. I think it looks like there's genuine choices in relatively short playtime. I think that there's an advanced game to move on to when you know the game well. I hope it survives. I hope it thrives. I hope the gameplay shines through over what I think are a couple of mistakes that have been made around the periphery of it. So next up from me, it's Nations, the dice game. It's from Lotaplet.fi and designed by Rustan Hakonson, who designed Nations, the game from last year's Essen. It plays one to four players in a 15 minute per player time frame. So what does this do? Well, it re-implements Nations for a start. It's another civilization game, but this is with dice. It has a very similar look and feel to Nations, and players will have a board representing a civilization on which you can place buildings and a wonder. The main board has stacks of tiles in rows with increasing cost, and lastly, there are player tracks for points and space for a famine and war tile for each round. There are four rounds where players will get one turn each, on each turn, players will roll the dice, starting with five, and have the following actions available to them. They can re-roll. They can spend a re-roll chit to roll one or more of your dice again. They can buy a tile by spending either gold or strength dice results, depending on the cost pr printed on the tile. And they can try and build a wonder by spending the stone dice results. There's also a book track that players can assign the book dice results to gain extra points and last up are famine and war with famine players must match the famine score on the tile to earn points and the same is true of war but the players must therefore use strength strength is also used to decide the first player so what do the buildings and advisors and wonders do will they offer you more powerful dice chits to spend and generally make life easier wonders will offer you extra victory points too at the end of the fourth round the scores are added and the victor determined 
So as I said, this game is very much a watered-down version of the Nations game. Ronan, how do you think it compares, and what are your general thoughts? Well, let's start with components like we usually do. I think they've done a really good job in two ways. I think, firstly, it looks really good. I think the dice look, which is always great for a dice game, and they really maintained the design style of Nations. When I opened up that rule book, when I had a look at it, when I had a look at pictures of it, I could tell what things were for and what their role was in the game to a degree because they really followed the design ethos through from Nations into Nations the dice game, which is great to see. Absolutely, yeah, it really, really does look like Nations. It's the they've obviously used the same artist, the same the same team behind it, and it flows almost seamlessly. So, yeah, and it feels the same as well. You're doing they're doing very similar things, but in different ways. This is a civilization building game, as 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 Nations is. How do you feel that it lends itself to dice rolling? Is it too luck driven for you, Ronan, or does it actually work? See. Nations in itself was an abstraction of, of dice building and there's no map and what have you and it worked really well as a game and the theme held it together but I'm not sure it was the most thematic civ building game in the world. I think what you've got is a game of the game rather than a game of civilization building. I think it's that one step away that this is exactly what they set out to do is turn nations into a dice game that's what they've done but i think they've probably lost a bit of the sieve there while they're doing it i think they've kept the nation's feel of preparing for famine and and the war and well basically war's been combined with events pretty much although the, the military still puts you first you have to replace buildings in your tableau when you're buying the cards the top row costs more all that it's very clever the way they've done it just that's even a step further away from a thematic civilization game. And I'm not sure that they've really kept that feel. Yeah, I agree with you. I think they have taken the sort of the thematic feel of it away with these dice rolling. And to be honest with you, I just don't really think dice rolling belongs in this type of game. It just doesn't feel right for me. It seems like the game is really short. 15 minutes per player and I think it is going to play that quickly so half an hour with the two with two players if not quicker and I'm not sure that there's any actual choices other than just going for a particular dice color and that's going to give you a chance of certain resources to build certain things I think that's that's the only real choice you've got in the game I think you're right I think pretty much that there's not really enough uses for each dice face there's not a great deal of uses there. food pretty much is for food and stone is to, to do what stone does and swords are swords you, you don't when you get the dice you're not then deciding what to do with each dice you're more deciding which dice is it that you want so i think you're right with that one i think also and one of my other problem is that there's probably very limited player action within the, within this there's blocking via drafting. There's the comparison in the military. But are you really interacting with the players around you? A lot of the time, when you've got that random bit of a dice game, it's the interaction with other players that make it fun and whereby you can use your dice cleverly. It, has it got those two elements? You're going to be head down on this one for me. I think you are going to be studying what's in front of you. And also, with dice rolling, for a civilization building game for me, it's all about just that definite building up and you're you're definitely increasing which you, which you will do in this game but you know what you're going to get if i build this and this i'm aiming for that and to be honest unless somebody does something nasty to me i'm going to get that that's that's going to be the end result of me building this building and this building with a dice game the end result might mean that you get nothing 
it just it will depend on the luck of a dice roll so you can plan all you want and you can prepare all you want and you don't get those dice rolls you're not going to go anywhere who are you and what have you done with sean <laughs> i still like my dice games i just not sure that this particular game lends itself to dice rolling it sounds like i'm warping you it sounds like you come around to my point of view <laughs> slowly but surely Ever since you spent 412 euro on that big green dice last year, you've you turned. leave my big green dice out of this. <laughs> it, this game looks very well designed. If you're interested in a dice game and that's what grabs you, and this is sort of your niche of the market, go for it. I thought this would be your niche of the market, Sean, but it looks like you're coming to your senses. I'm not a big fan of dice game. There are a few that I like, but th- there's lots that don't. For example, Roll Through the Ages, I just had no interest in it at all. When I was looking at this and thinking about it, I was thinking, oh, they've done that well. That's clever. They've interpreted nations in a really interesting way. And then I realized, actually, I just want to play nations. And that's all this game did for me. It said, look, remember how clever nations is? Remember how much you enjoy playing that? Well, go and play it. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm not worried about nations to dice game. For me, uh, I don't think there's enough there. I'm going to put it as a well-made game, but a trap. And I'm going to go off and play a game of nations. I think you've pretty much summed that up for me. I really wanted to like this one. I really had high hopes. I really wanted a light Civ game. I backed Tiny Epic Kingdoms when it was on Kickstarter because I really want a light Civ game. This isn't the game I wanted it to be at all. And you're absolutely right. Just go and play nations. This one's a trap. Sean. We've only been doing this since our second year. However, already we firmly have a tradition that I think it would be wrong for us to ignore at this stage. Pray tell, Ronan. Complaining about the lack of information put out by publishers before Essen. <laughs> what game would you like to talk about? I wish to give you this year's first entry, and it's Orongo. It is by designer Rainer Knizia, possibly the greatest board game designer of all time. It is being published by Ravensburger, huge, huge German toy and games company. It is ready for this flood of information. You might want to take notes. For two to four players, it lasts around 40 minutes. It's themed on Easter Island and the building of the Maori there and the statues. It is an auction game using seashells. You are definitely bidding for the right to build statues in certain areas of Easter Island. That's it. That's all we know. That's all the information that's been given to the world with regards to the latest release from one of the most famous board game designers in the whole world. (sighs) Yes. Nothing out there. I searched and I searched. I even went on the German Ravensburger site, did a Google translation. There's nothing on there. Somebody managed to get a picture of the components on Board Game Geek. I have no idea how they did it, but I'm grateful because at least it gave me a look at the game. So I can say that it actually looks very nice. There is player screens, and I do like me some player screens, Ronan. It's very colourful. It's very bright. And, uh, yeah, that's about all I can tell you. That's right. That's all we know. Treasure. (laughs) Are you going to explain that decision? It's it's Dr. Knizia, and he's awesome. Treasure. Okay, so he hasn't been releasing big, heavy gamers games recently. But in terms of his light games that he's released, I like them. 
I enjoyed Spectaculum, and it's from Ravensburger. I trust that they make good decisions when it comes to publishing games for the most part. Yeah, it's going to be family-orientated, but if this gets my kids into Ryan games, then fantastic. Out of loyalty for his sheer awesome, I want it. Treasure. Uh, for me, well, what have I got to work on? It's got player screens. That's a plus. I like Knizia. It's a plus. The board looks a bit difficult to decipher. It's always just a massive octagons, or I can't remember exactly what shape they were. But yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's possibly a treasure. That's all I can say. Shall we move on? Let's move on. But it had to be mentioned. He is the Doctor. (laughs) So, next up is a game called Kingsport Festival. It's from Stratalibri, along with a whole host of others, like Passport Games and Sir Chester Cobblepot. It's got a release and it's got a company releasing it in almost every language. It's by Andrea Chiavesio and Gianluca Santopietro. And they are the guys who brought us Kingsburg, which is a funny thing because this game is heavily based on Kingsburg. It plays three to five players, with a time frame suggested of about 90 minutes. As I said, this game is a re-implementation of a Kingsburg, but with a heavy, heavy Lovecraftian overhaul. Players are going to represent cultists worshipping the Elder Gods. Instead of individual player boards in this game, there is one central board, and there are cards depicting the various Elder Gods are placed around the board in numbered order from 1 to 19. The Gods like the advisors in Kingsburg, are going to grant resources in the form of evil, death, and destruction. And they also offer you other boons, but the higher up the order you go, you're going to lose sanity. And I'll talk about sanity later. Players, as in Kingsburg, are going to choose their colour, and they're going to roll three dice, and they will assign those dice again, like Kingsburg, And what they're going to do, if they were, for instance, to get a 5, a 4, and a 1, they must now make a choice whether to go for the whole 10 and put it on that space or split their dice up, hoping that one of the other spaces that they can go on remains available for their next turn round because they're going to get one go. Everyone's going to get one turn round. Resources are then collected from the Elder Gods and buildings on the central board can then be built by players. There is a starting point but then players must build at an adjacent location. But there are multiple choices. There are roads off from all these locations that they can head in. On certain turns, players will face events and investigator cards. The events will add something to the game for good or bad and will change up the game slightly. And with the investigators, the players will have to battle them with rewards if you manage to defeat them in battle. And, of course, penalties for failure. The game is going to last 12 rounds, and there is an optional scenario variant. So there's a pack of cards with different scenarios that you can start with. And this is going to change the way the game plays in some way. Lastly, as I mentioned before, there's a sanity track. This is something that players really do need to be wary of. If they reach the top, any further sanity subtractions will come off their points total instead. So, Ronan... It is definitely Kingsburg with a horror Lovecraftian theme. How does it stand up for you? Well, if you were going to give me 
a sort of hybrid supergroup of designers. You're going to have to go a long way to beat the designers of Kingsburg and Olympus mixed in with the designer of Letters from Whitechapel. I mean, if you think Kingsburg such a successful game, we talked about it in our expansions episode, game I enjoyed many, many times, and then you're going to make it a bit darker. Well, who's the guy to go to but the guy that designed the really fantastic Letters from Whitechapel? So all the promise is there, Sean. My one wish right now is that the works of H.P. Lovecraft never made it into the public domain <laughs> and I wasn't plagued by Cthulhu. <laughs> I know you've got your problem with never-ending slew of Lovecraftian games that come on, but although they are starting to get tiresome to me, I am a Lovecraft fan. Whoa, 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 whoa hold on, hold on. <laughs> this is two in a row. What's going on? I think you can probably have too much of anything. And yeah, it seems to be the go-to spot for game designers. If you can't think of a theme for yourself, let's just tag a Cthulhu theme onto it and off we go. So, but yeah, I think that this one in particular, they've gone to massive, massive lengths to really drive that theme home. The rule book is full of explanations, quotes from Lovecraft himself. All the investigators have backstories printed on that rule book. They've really, really gone for it. They haven't just slapped a theme at it and hoped for the best. Yeah, they have. <laughs> they have. They have. It doesn't work. It's, you know, I know that the designers discussed this, but they call all these characters Elder Gods and they're not Elder Gods. There's all creatures and all sorts in there that have nothing to do with the Elder Gods and they call them the Elder Gods because it's easier. Well, that's rubbish. And uh, the characters don't really feel very thematic. And you've got the kind of nonsense. Right? The three resources, death, destruction, and evil, right? You're using death, destruction, and evil to build buildings. That's just weird. Why Why am I using death, destruction, and evil to build a police station? I mean, some people could give me an answer for that. Maybe it's appropriate. But what? De- no. No. Horrific. Horrific retheme. I'm terribly bitter and swayed by the fact it's Cthulhu. But no, I don't like it. <laughs> I probably didn't express myself the best there i just meant that they haven't just called it cthulhu and left it at that they've actually done some backstories and they've they've worked a little bit on the design of it and it does have a very i think they have i think it's got a very very lovecraftian feel to it the artwork is spectacularly good and i just i just felt like the overall feeling if for me from a distance it just felt really lovecraftian I knew you were going to go artwork on me. This is how to make a Cthulhu game, all right? Paint something black and then put some green filigree through it. Ta-da! It's thematic. What is thematic? The spells. They're thematic. The spells, they are thematic. Yeah, the spells are thematic. There's something There's something a little bit different. But what I wanted to really get at, Ronan, right, we've talked about, we disagree on the theme. How does it compare to Kingsburg? Well... There is, honestly, from me watching it, they've done two gameplay sort of tweaks and or improvements, if you like. Firstly is those spells. Okay, you're building up and you can do things. Every turn is not exactly the same. I think, okay, that's cool. That's a good idea. I think that the fact that you've got somewhere to go when you haven't got anywhere else to place your dice, I think 
which is weird because you make it an evil theme, but here's a way of us being nice to you. You can't place a dice somewhere to put it. That's strange, but fine. Okay. Um, I think that's good. And that would have been welcome in King's Road, shall we say. But I think they've also gone backwards in some ways. The fact that everyone's playing on the same board. I know there's certain different branching ways you can go, but there's not that many branching ways. I know they've tried to bring some sort of differences in, in each game with the scenarios, but to be honest with you, they seem like very, very minor differences. I don't think that they're changing the game much at all. I don't think it compares favourably to Kingsburg. I, I can't see a reason. It's certainly not Kingsburg with the expansion. Kingsburg plus the Forger Realm is way ahead of Kingsport Festival in my opinion because first this isn't for me though is it I don't care about the Cthulhu theme I'm not interested sticking a bit of black and grey onto a board is not going to make me feel thematic they've got a really really good artwork for each of those characters but they don't feel thematic to me they just give you three reds and four blacks or two greys and three reds it's just I, I bet you don't even call the resources by their names you just call them by the colors i bet no one remembers the names of any of those characters because the names and who they are make no difference to how they play the ones further on take more sanity and give you more resources the ones lower down take less sanity and give you some resources there's no theme there this is not a themed game it is a repaste over someone's just drawn some crayons on the kingsburg board and called it cthulhu i'm not interested did you get that idea? I think you're not yeah, interested in this. Yeah, you're an intuitive man. That's why. <laughs> right. I, uh, I obviously am interested in this. It is for me. One of the things I really like about this game is is actually the sanity track. I like the fact that the higher the level of Elder Gods, or as Ronan quite correctly said, uh, Elder God offsprings and minor deities, or whatever you want to call them, the higher you go on this track, the more goods they have, but they also are going to penalise you with sanity penalties. So you've got to have, with Kingsburg, if you've got that high number, you're always going to go for something really high because you've very rarely got the high end. And it became sometimes that somebody who just constantly rolls well is going to have an advantage. This time, it's going to balance out because the more you go up on that sanity track, the more your points are in jeopardy. I think it balances the game and offers a little bit more thought as to where you're going to place those dice. It's a trap, by the way, Sean. I'm not sure I actually stated it. It's a trap. I looked at this game. I was interested. I saw it was three-player minimum. A lot of my gaming is at home with my wife, so I'm always looking for something that can cater for two players. I saw it had a two-player variant in the making. They're going to bring a bonus card or a promo out, hopefully, in, in Essen this year. And it's going to be, a obviously, designer-implemented two-player variant. Okay, I'm back interested in it now. I think it looks amazing. I think it plays like one of my favourite games. It adds enough differences with those spells, with that sanity track... With those investigators in in the middle where you're constantly having to fight and it's not just the one fight at the end, I think it offers enough for me. I'm probably going to buy it if it's available in English at Essen. It hasn't been confirmed yet, but for me, yeah, it's a treasure. So my next game I wish us to discuss is Looney Quest. This is designed by Lauren Escoffier and David Franck. Lauren has designed 
Picks, Bloom, Corto, and Doodle Quest. And David Franck has designed the same Z's, but not Corto. So Picks, Bloom, and Doodle Quest. It's being published by Libelu, and they are famous for uh, publishing Dixit, Seasons, Lords of Zidit. So they're from France, and they make real high-end production games, beautiful games. Now, these guys designed Doodle Quest, which came out a couple of months ago in the US, and I was interested enough to import that, so I have some idea about how this plays. They've taken the same idea, which is you have a central board which displays some form of drawing, and then there is a quest to do something on that drawing. So it may be you have to draw a route around something, or you have to connect two areas, or you have to circle different things on the board, whatever it may be. The trick to it is you have your own see-through laminate and when you look at the uh, picture everyone is then simultaneously going to attempt in a limited amount of time to draw whatever the quest may be and then you're going to put your laminate over the top of the picture see how well you did according to the framework of the particular quest you've been given and then score or lose points accordingly doodle quest is really really fun you can play with adults for five or ten minutes it's a good laugh it's great with kids fantastic with them now, what this guy has taken that design, that idea, and they've put it into a video game setting, and they've added some more bells and whistles, and the whole idea is a really original theme of we are all champions, and there is a dying king, and whoever can complete the quest most successfully is going to get to replace the dying king, who has no heir. I don't know how this keeps on happening to them. So, in Looney Quest... Whereas Doodle Quest was like you'd play six boards and they all had the same sort of watery aquatic theme. In Looney Quest, you travel through one of seven themed worlds and they're themed on something you might find in a video game. So there's mechanical world and there's a desert world and there's all different sorts of worlds. And there are six different levels for each of these worlds. So you put the level within the game box, which then becomes what's called the console. And then you're going to attempt to do whatever the quest may be in order to gain experience points, is what victory points are called here. And whoever has most victory points at the end of the sixth level, and generally you're going to battle a boss on that sixth level, again with the video game theming, you're going to win if you've got the most experience points. There's different things players can do as well. When you're playing the level, you can gain prank tokens and play them on each other. They've also mixed it up in that... For example, some of the missions, you get 30 seconds to look at the map, and then it gets flipped over, and you have to draw from memory. Um, the prank tokens, you can earn them. There's things like you put a banana on another player's draw sheet, and then they have to draw around that banana token. Or there's a mosquito token, which you put on top of the other player's pen, and the next time they draw, they have to draw without that mosquito dropping off. There's things like power-ups, which will shield you against traps, because there's traps on the board, and you get penalties for things. And the penalties you get are, well, there's something called cramp, which means the next time you draw, you have to keep your arm completely straight. Or there's a switch trap, which means you have to draw using your other hand for the next turn. They then get into more complicated sort of different things on the maps as you go in through these seven worlds. And there is sort of an order of complexity to them that they suggest you play in. There's things like lasers across the map. And as you're drawing, you have to hit the button to turn the laser off before you can get through the area where the laser is. There's bonus levels you can get access to in which you actually take your player piece and you flick it and you're trying to get it to stop on a certain area on the map and that will score you bonus points there's an arcade mode which makes it more difficult everyone has to play with a penalty so what they've done is taken doodle quest the idea of drawing on your own laminate according to a picture which gives you a quest and they've sort of chucked loads of different things at it and generally made it a bit weirder a bit zanier and a bit more french sean whoa ronan when you first told me that you wanted me to research Looney Quest, I thought maybe you'd gone a bit loony. 
What a weird name for an actual game that that maybe adults can play. Now, this game is stylish. It's colourful. It's got really attractive design. And it made me think immediately, with the pranks, it made me think of Mario Kart or Mario Land or one of those. It's got that feel to it, definitely. As Ronan said, it's got that computer game feel. There's loads and loads of variety uh, with all the maps that you get. There's loads that comes in the box. And I think what could make or break this game is how effective the traps and the pranks are, because I think they sound hilarious. Oh, that idea of having to put a mosquito token on someone's pen, if they drop it off, they get penalised, that, that is funny. And obviously the fact, you know, who's it going to get played on around the table? You don't want to be doing too well with these sort of things going on in the game. It's also going to be a real leveller as well. I found with Doodle Quest that some players are, are obviously better than other players. And this kind of brings in a leveller. And in this sort of a light-hearted, fun sort of game, I don't mind levellers like that. So I think, really, I mean, I love Doodle Quest. It's very light. There's not that much to it, but it's great fun. My kids love playing it. I've played it down with gaming groups for, you know, just a couple of rounds. And everyone's had a good laugh. And I think this just sounds even more incredible. Do you think, Ronan, that this is even more for the family and stroke children market? Or do you think that adults will have as much fun? I think both. I think, I'll tell you what, I, this theme... I really like that they've put a theme in it which will appeal to slightly older children. And also they've ramped it up a little bit and just added a couple of little gamey bits to it because there's loads and loads of games that are for younger kids and sort of dexterity-based and very light and very simple versions of game mechanisms. There are very few that are themed specifically towards older children, young teenagers, teenagers, what have you. And this is one of those things. I mean, look at what's huge. Video gaming is huge with them, right? It's, one of those, it's not that hard to reach out and see what's going to appeal to them. And rather than just getting cruddy licensed versions of, of licenses that we see everywhere, doing something like this with original theme, but a theme that appeals to them, I think is fantastic. So, yeah, I think this is going to go right across the age. I think young kids are going to enjoy playing it and the fun of it although it might get a bit challenging on the harder levels obviously you're not going to be playing pranks and stuff against the younger kids the ones who are a bit older are going to enjoy the whole video game aspect of it and when you get older than that you're just going to enjoy it because you know what trying to draw things accurately is fun because we don't often draw things as adults unless it's i guess part of your job or your hobby i certainly don't often draw things and i'm not great at these games but i find them lots and lots of fun I really do feel like it has got that video game feel down to a t you've got the in the end of level monsters you've got this arc where the levels get harder and harder yeah for me i wouldn't have i wouldn't have sought this game out at all i've not played doodle quest it didn't appeal to me i'm sure it's a lot of fun and i'm sure i love it when i do play it and but for ronan sending me in the direction of this i'd probably have never discovered it i'm glad i have i'm hoping that he's going to pick it up at nesson and if he does, I'm going to be first in the queue to play. It's a definite treasure for me. 100% this is coming home with me. If I have to tear people limb from limb if it sells out, this will be in my bag coming home. End of story. Lunar Quest will be mine. Treasure, probably the biggest treasure of the whole of Essen. This is going to be awesome. So, finally for me in this episode, 
is a game called Greenland, and it's by Sierra Madre Games, designed by Phil Eklund, who did High Frontier, and Philip Klarman, who I haven't really heard of the games that he's done in the past. He's done Magenta 1859 and Reichshofen 1870, both in 2007. The game plays one to three players in a time frame suggested of about 90 minutes. It is... A card game set in 11th to 15th century Greenland with mechanisms including worker placement and some auctions. Players assume the role of indigenous tribes trying to survive outside influences as the world changes around them in Greenland. Each player will look to support their tribes by sending hunters out to gather food and fuel while looking to gain victory points by either attacking and wiping out the other tribes or gathering resources. The game starts with two rows of cards. One of them is going to form the north and the other the south Greenland. And on these cards are where you send your workers to hunt and gather among other things. The cards all start off on the warm side of the tableau. But global cooling can make the world a harsher place to live. And if that happens, the cards will move to the cold side and everything will become more difficult to gain. There are event cards in the game and these are ready to draw and will add a condition to the game that players must adhere to or work around. The game round plays out as follows. First off, you're going to resolve events, as mentioned before. Secondly, assign hunters. This is where your hunters are assigned to the hunting grounds, doing some resource gathering or to colonize the new world. And also, this is your chance to raid other tribes for wives or animals. And lastly, you can promote one of your hunters to an elder. But we'll talk about elders in a minute. Negotiate. Players can bribe each other to peacefully withdraw hunters, including marry them to their daughters. There are other things you can do in this round, but that's the main thing. Resolve hunting. This is where you find out if you've managed to kill your prey or whether they've managed to kill you. Maintain livestock. You're going to have livestock in this game. You now need to pay their upkeep, otherwise you're going to lose them. And take elder actions. As I said, elders are in the game and these are going to give you powers as long as you have workers in place as elders the elders can be changed from polytheism which give points for hunting to monotheism which rewards resource gathering the game ends when the last event card is turned or when no warm or cold cards remain in either row there's a lot to this game i've barely scratched the surface i'm not sure it even made sense but ronan greenland sean 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 I think there's one important thing we've forgotten here in deciding to talk about this game. I am too thick to play Phil Eklund games. I played Pax Porphyriana and just did not have a clue what was going on. I played it a couple of times. I think that's a great game. Probably, maybe, if you're brainy enough. I played High Frontier and I nearly started crying about three quarters of the way through the game because I had achieved exactly nothing I realised I'd got to Mars and I was stuck there and I couldn't get home. And the other players took pity on me and worked everything out so that I was able to get home. And basically, I sat there being told what to do. I was awful at both of them. I was totally confused. So when you told me I had to start looking up a Phil Eklund game, I thought, why would this be any different? I've deliberately avoided it. The playtest copies have been around me at London on board. I've always gone, no, it's a Phil Eklund game. 
please, 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 please. They keep it away from me because it's going to make me cry. And now they tell me this is his easiest game. I love the theme. I think it's fantastic. There are such cool things going on in this game. There's the coming in of the different religion, the changing of the climate, the negotiation, the way the different tribes are all set up with different strengths and weaknesses. It's so varied. It tackles so many interlocking issues. You have made me interested in another Phil Eklund game, and for that, I curse you. Ronan, I too consider myself far too thick to be taking on a Phil Eklund game. However, despite the fact that Pax Perifiana was actually quite a small game, I was still lulled into a false sense of security with the size of this game. It's in a tiny box. I thought, how much is he really going to pack into a tiny box about Greenland? It seems quite a lot. Yeah, young Mr. Eklund, he doesn't do skim in the surface of things, does he? He wouldn't have pasted Cthulhu onto uh, Kingsburg, let me tell you. <laughs> that's, why, that's what he would not have done. Let me, let's, let's go through that one. Yes, this game is very, very in-depth, very true to the subject matter, and I would almost say it's like a history lesson in a box. I learned more about the indigenous tribes of Greenland just doing a rules research on this game. Yeah, it's not something I've ever really considered or taken as a scholarly course. The history of Greenland, I have to say. And that is, you know, a big thing about his games. I think that if you know something about the subject, it's going to help. If you don't, you're going to learn. You're going to genuinely learn something about the subject at hand. So, and that's what the appeal to him is. That is his enduring appeal is highly thematic, very, very deep games. And, oh, when it works, amazing. When you can find the right Phil Eklund game for you, it will be one of your favourite games. Let me trust you. I've got friends who are mad into High Frontier, love it, play it with the expansions, get together you know, every couple of weeks, and I can see they love it. I am just too scared of it. I have friends who love Pax Perfuriana, adore it. When they get together every, you know, Martin Griffiths is famously one of the big supporters of Pax Perfuriana. We see him every few months. He loves that game to pieces, and the other guys who love it play with them, and they have the best time. And I just couldn't get into it. <sighs> now you're drawing me back to another one. So I had high hopes, Sean. They told me that there was a better rule book here. <laughs> but there's only one set of rules online, isn't there, Sean? Would you be talking about the living rule book, Ronan? The living rules on the Sierra Madre website. I'll be talking about those ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got me breaking into a sweat again, haven't you? You're really, you're really putting it to me, this pre-essence. Sweet mother of God. Not again. You cannot write another rule book like that. Please, please, you cannot. It's unbelievable. What is that? I don't know what it is. I was getting just having visions and sweating, and I think I found my spirit guide at one point. What is going on? What is really infuriating is that. Jeff Gamble, one of our podcast colleagues from The Longview, there's a video of him discussing this game at Gen Con. He displays a proper rulebook, which he says has been improved, which people who I know and trust have helped work on, and it's there, and it's got pictures in and examples, and he says this is the best Phil Eklund rulebook that there's been, and it's not anywhere online. There is no PDF of it. We cannot see that rulebook to believe them. 
all we've got is that awful living rules, which is just terrifying. Yeah, I saw, I saw the same video. The rule book looked brilliant. He was waxing lyrical about how great it was, especially the colour diagrams in it, which uh, Phil Eklund hasn't really done in the past. Imagine, so, 2014 and we've got colour diagrams. There you go. But yeah, that that living rule book, it has rules for rules for rules. Just footnotes posted in there random comments there's a footnote about meat eating and man killing horses in there for some reason (laughs) (laughs) they discovered them in australia recently did you know i did now yes i did (laughs) (laughs) he's been proven correct you naysayers (laughs) but yeah it does look like a fantastic game but that rule book is just again ringing alarm bells all over i'm just thinking what rule set am i going to get am i going to get the rule book is the theme of this episode isn't it it really is it really is i think for different reasons and i think we've covered a lot of different ways to mess up a rule book it's but, right up there yeah rule... what they need to do is take this living rules put them in discrete rectangular hard to see boxes and then put the score track right to left and then not release them at all in any format. There we go. Now we're talking. <laughs> it would be the Essen Super Game. <laughs> Getting back to the actual game, I tell you, this is, I've said it, this is going to shine with invested players, three invested players who know the game, who understand all three factions and how they play, who understand the repercussions of the events which come up and the decisions made by other players, can follow the strategy, know how the warm and cold climate affect how you play. The question I have to ask myself is, can I see myself being in that select group of players? I'm just going backwards and forwards. Am I going to love Greenland enough to put the work into it? That Let's face it, these games deserve it. If you put the effort in, you will get the reward back. It's about finding the right Phil game for you. Is this going to be the game for me? Sean, talk to me while I still try and make my mind up. Ronan, for me, it's the Phil Eklund game so far released that I am most likely to do exactly what you just said and get into, dive into, and really dedicate some time to. I bought High Frontier because my wife has a physics degree. She loved the rule book. She loved reading about all the physics terms that she used to study, but we never got around to playing the game because we just couldn't get our head around it. It was too much of an undertaking for us to put it out and try and work out how to play it. This one... Even the living rule book seems a lot clearer to me. I've got a much better idea of how this game is going to play out. I like the subject matter. I didn't know I was going to like the subject matter, but it has actually appealed to me. One thing that really does intrigue me is that negotiation phase. I love games that just give you carte blanche to negotiate right in the middle of a tight game. There's a little bit of fun thrown in there when your, your hunters are on my turf. How how do I get those hunters off? What can I give you? Can I marry you off to one of my one of my wives? Can you marry me off? <laughs> I've tried many times, Ronan. I know it's just not like it's, it's just not. You're not no. working good race material. <laughs> I love that aspect of fun in the middle of this head scratchy mean game. That that's the bit that I think hooked me. 
Yeah, I'm not sure about buying the game with negotiation around you lot, you sharks. You don't appear to let me, you know, find my wings. Uh, what's what's my um, verdict on Greenland treasure? I'm going to buy it. Yeah, I think it will take some time. It might be until next lesson before I get it on the table and play it and give it some some proper playtime. But it really does sing to me. The rule book will hopefully be finished by the time Essen comes around. If not, I'll keep looking at it. I'll keep updating myself. I'll find the rule set that agrees with me. But I will be buying this game. It's a treasure. So the last game we're going to cover in this, the first of our preview episodes for Essen 2014, is a Japanese game called The Ravens of Three Sahashri. This is designed by Kuro, who has made an impact this year with his design of Seventh Hero. It's published by Manifest Destiny, which is generally linked to Kuro himself and with the publishers of Seventh Hero. This is a two-player, asymmetrical, deduction, cooperative card game if you haven't heard anything about the ravens of three sahashri before you are going to have to stick with me for a little while because i'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey here so we have two players one player is ren she's a young courtesan who has escaped from her life of misery the other player is feth feth is a psychic detective who's trying to help her repair repair ren's psyche because it's been shattered by the trauma she has faced it's definitely a Japanese game. You've got it at this point. The two are in love. Ren is a young Japanese girl and Feth has come from abroad and they've fallen in love with each other, which is why she tries to escape from her life as a courtesan. During their escape, her helper, her friend, only friend in the world was killed and that's, that shattered her. She's gone. So he's now going to delve into her coma and he finds a vast wasteland of sad memories where Ren's frail song of poetry threatens to be drowned out by the harsh cause of world-eating ravens, as you do. So, how do we play the game? There's a deck of cards. Ren, the young lady, takes four cards. They are each going to show one of five possible colours in the game. And she makes a column of these four cards, one above the other, and they're all face down. And that is what represents her heart. Feth plays one card to the middle of the table, and that starts the Atman. And the Atman is basically... Ren's psyche and her memories. Then Feth is going to draw cards to construct the Atman, while Ren is going to take cards from the Atman to add to her heart, which is that column of four cards, and she's attempting to form the correct structure of her poetry. So those cards are going to have numbers on them, and one of the rhythms of poetry within Japanese is a 7775 rhythm, and those are the totals of cards that Ren is attempting to get in the four rows, starting from this column that she's created. So if the top card is red, she's going to try and get seven in red across the top by taking cards from the Atman, which Feth has played. Now, Feth can draw as many cards as he likes, but he can never run out of cards in the deck or the game is over. He also wants to avoid the five ravens in the game. There's one of those in there for each colour in the deck, and they're going to make his life more difficult. Feth then adds as many cards as he likes or can to the Atman, and he's trying to create blocks of colour of certain values, and he's also having to cover faded memories in the grid pattern. So the cards have got pictures on, and some of them are faded sort of 
pictures of memories from Ren, and he's trying to cover those together and, and make coherent blocks. Unused cards are eaten by the raven of the corresponding colour if it has been drawn from the deck and is in play. Now, why do you want blocks of cards? Because blocks of cards allow those poem cards within Ren's hearts to be revealed. And also, if you create blocks of certain values, you can chase the ravens of that colour away, which is good. Get them away from you for that round. Or in fact, in the third round, if you chase those away, you're going to score for cards under the ravens. So they're going to help you score in the game. So Ren is looking to complete her poem. And once that poem is completed in the 775 pattern, the Atman must only contain the colours of her poem. So, you're starting off and Feth is playing cards and he doesn't really know what colours he's looking to play or what blocks he's looking to make. And by what cards Ren takes and what she flips over and shows to him without discussing it, he's trying to work out what colours are within her poem so that he can create the right pattern. You play this over three rounds, and the third round is harder than the others because you have to complete one line of the poem each round you play. However, previously untriggered poem cards will be in a score pile. You can trigger poem cards for Ren in order to use special abilities, but if you haven't done that, they go in a score pile, and Feth and Ren can then use them to complete the lines in that third and very difficult round. Uh, the Ravens, once they come into play, continue to be in play, which is another reason why Feth won't want to draw lots of cards at once, because if all the Ravens are in play, it's going to make life more difficult. They start eating your cards and reducing your options. At the end, you're going to score for your heart cards and any heart cards which were under Ravens when you defeated them during the third round. So you made a block of a colour and you chased away. Now, to get some idea of what's a good score, each card is worth one point that you've got into a scoring area. So heart cards and cards under Raven. And four is considered to be a good score. So this is not an easy game. It is not a wild free scoring game. Every card counts. Sean, I think that was perfectly coherent and makes sense. And it's that same old chestnut of shattered psyche and creating the Atman to make a poem from the structure of her heart while stopping her from being drowned out by the harsh cause of the world eating ravens. We've seen it a thousand times before. What's your thoughts? What? <laughs> what, what, what just happened? Jeez, I think dude. I slipped into a coma listening to that. Oh, because oh, oh, I know what to do now. <laughs> Don't worry, I can get you out. Avoid the ravens. Oh, God, Ronan. I think I could sit here and pretend to be all windswept and interesting and go down the psychology route of all oh, reading between the lines, there's hidden meanings in everything. I, I No, it is utter nonsense. If you are grabbed by that theme, then you deserve this game. You do deserve this game you do absolutely I'll tell you why you deserve this game all right this is a totally different theme to anything i've ever seen or heard of this could be to a penny in japan i don't know but i have never seen or heard this sort of a theme before this is the sort of thing that gaming needs to do different themes explore different avenues and we will find different audiences this is fantastic what a bunch of lunacy but brilliance well, we agree on half of that statement. I could come up with a game about a kung fu caterpillar who has Ebola and a bit of memory loss. Like, hold on, hold on. Is, can I pre-order that? Is that? This <laughs> is going to be Essen twenty fifteen. Link me, link me. This is just, it's just nuts. Okay, all right. The theme is the thing that's going to have people talking about this game. Now, does the gameplay stand up to it? For me, for what I've seen. There's a little bit of innovation in here, but is it just 
a massive, massive dollop of theme thrown at this game. And do the mechanics, are they just not set collection, matching pictures, and effectively the gist of the game is no deeper than something like Hanabi, surely? Where are you going to go there for? <laughs> don't, don't take me to dark places. You've got to give subtle hints in Hanabi. You've got to give subtle yeah, hints in yeah, this subtle... game. No! Left, left, <laughs> not that one. No, I didn't mean that one. Yeah, subtle hints. That game's actually. Do you know what? I don't hate Hanabi. It's okay. It's, it's... Well, I think that you cannot get this gameplay without that thing. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> I know what your response to that's going to be, but the theme truly ties it together. Once you get hold of the theme, what you're doing makes sense. And yeah, I think Hanabi is the closest game we know of to this, but that just goes to show how little the whole area of co-op has been explored because I don't think it's that similar to Hanabi. I think it's really, really interesting. I think it's much more difficult to give sort of coincidental or accidental clues in this. And it's much more about truly understanding how the other person thinks, why they've stopped drawing at a certain time, why they decide to put a card in a certain area, why, for example, the Ren player has taken a card which splits up the Atman and then left only one of the two halves down, which is what she has to do and, and can do. It's an offbeat theme. It's got cool artwork which suits the theme. And it's an offbeat approach to co-op. And this is good because... There's too many games which take very similar approaches to things. This is something which has gone to a different area. I, I completely disagree with you. I think the gameplay is what interests me. The theme is just fine. Okay, that's what it is. That's what it is. But I think the theme and the gameplay are linked. Gameplay question for you. Yeah. It seems to me that the fifth player seems to have a lot more to do. Now, it might not differ in importance, because obviously the Ren player has a very important thing. They've got to give the clues as to what the the heart cards are. But they don't. the Ren player doesn't seem to do a lot more than that. The Feth player seems to be doing all the actual game playing and the guessing and everything. Yeah, I think it's definitely there that the the Ren player's given the hints and the Feth player's trying to interpret them. Yes. But I can't see any way in which the Ren player is not going to be completely sort of involved in what the Feth player's doing. Because you're watching everything they do because you're trying to get an idea of have they copped on to your hints? Have they just drawn the perfect combination of cards and stopped? So you kind of go, right, we're on the right track here. Have they drawn the perfect combination and then carried on drawing? So there's more risks and you think, oh, no, I haven't quite got that right. And then watch what they do with those cards and go, well, what, what, did, you know, what did they think I meant? Where have they gone? Where, what sort of slight hint have I got to give to them? So I think that they're doing physically more, but it's quite possible actually that Ren is doing more thinking because they have a much more subtle role to play and they're going to have to interpret what's being done by Feth because Feth is doing more sort of complicated movements. Not that he's doing a lot with the cards, but he's doing more with them than Ren is doing. Ren then has more to watch and interpret, whereas Feth has got more to do with the cards, but he's got little to watch and interpret and he has to take very subtle clues across. So I think there's a nice balance in there and what the two of them have to do. I take on board what you're saying. Joking aside, I do take on board that it is something new. 
they've brought something new to to the gaming world it's going to draw people in from maybe outside the gaming world and that can only be a good thing for me and my personal tastes i'm not a big manga fan i'm not a big japanese anime fan i'm not really into the hipster japan brand games i would never have looked at this game I'm glad you've shown it to me because it did give me a few giggles with that crazy story behind it. Not for me. It's a 100% a trap, but I can see the appeal in it. I don't reckon I'm a Japanese hipster either. I like some of the games. I don't mind giving them a go. I'm always interested to see what happens. Like, like so, I like Don Barico. That's quite an interesting game with different things going on. Uh, I know it's Japanese, but I like Kame, Love Letter, whatever. That's the obvious one. In terms of all, all the Japanese games coming out, and I think that one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this, and we're going to talk about another Japanese game next episode, is that when you look at that list of SM releases, the number of games coming from Japan and Korea and Taiwan and generally sort of the Southeast Asia area of the world is growing every year and they tend to do slightly different things and whether it's just slightly different in theme or artwork or like this it's a sort of game we've never seen before we have not seen this sort of game do I want to go over there and pick up 30 different Japanese car games that all cost eight euro and play them all. No, I don't. I definitely had a look, pick through them, and this is the one that was most intriguing to me that I thought genuinely offered not just an original theme, not just one slight little hook to try and get you involved like some of the other games, but a deep, different gameplay experience which I can enjoy with different types of gamers. People who would enjoy a slower, more deductive type of a game, perhaps possibly an older player or i think this is going to appeal to sort of teenager daughter um i think it might appeal to just different people that i'm going to play with so this is something i think will definitely fill a hole in my collection i have pre-ordered it i've paid for it i'm definitely getting it i've got 100 percent faith that this is going to be an extremely interesting gameplay experience and this is a treasure for me Thank you so much to listening to episode 31 of The Game Pit, the first of our Essen 2014 previews. We hope you discovered some new and interesting games there and we confirmed or completely disagreed with your opinions. Please tune in next time. It's going to be out in the next few days where we do another preview episode for Essen 2014. Yeah, definitely looking forward to that. So, as always, we are proud, proud members of the Dice Tower Network, along with the very best in gaming podcasts. You can find the Game Pits on 2d6.org with the very best in gaming goodness. You can contact us on thegamepitpodcast.gmail.com if you've got any questions or any ideas for shows, because we're always on the lookout for new ideas. You can come and join us at our Board Game Geek Guild. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Game Pit Podcast. Music by E. Aaron. 